Hey everyone, this is the Manipsin Sips podcast uh, featuring Dr. Brandon Cruz and uh, Dr. Jeremy Boy, that's me. Uh, today we're going to be talking about um, patellofemoral pain syndrome, which is kind of an umbrella term for anterior knee pain. A lot of people get kind of classified with this either initially when they first uh, get knee pain or see a physician or a PT, and then and or like people who have been suffering knee pain, haven't gotten where there's nothing really on imaging and they get just the umbrella term of patellofemoral pain syndrome. A uh, very common thing. Uh, most, uh, you'll see this pretty much in a lot of our female athletes or in my experience, I see it in all athletes and even uh, even uh, older adults, uh, seniors are like, oh, you got arthritic changes. Um, it's got to be that, but Upon looking at things, it's probably more mechanics and potentially imbalances and those sort of things. But before I keep talking, let me pass it off to my uh, partner in crime, Brandon. What's up, guys? How's everyone doing? Uh, Jeremy, thanks for that intro. Yeah, I think today, you know, we'll, we've been talking about the P- PFPS. Uh, try to say that three times fast. That always is a tongue twister for me. But just really how to diagnose it, um, what type of clients or what type of people tend to have it. Um, like, as you said, it's an umbrella term and, and too many people kind of just get labeled as that, you know, how do we get out of that labeling and really try and, you know, diagnose it properly. And then also interventions, you know, how are we going to uh, effectively treat it? I think that's what more people probably want to know is more the effective ways to treat it instead of, you know, continuing to do the same things that they're probably doing, uh, and hopefully, you know, it's supported by the research. So we'll go over what's supported by the research and indicated versus what is not today as well. Uh, Jeremy, let's uh, before we go any further, let's talk about drinks today. What do you what do you got in hand? Today I got uh, a Sublime Gosi from um, Eclipse Brewing, which was uh, recommended by my uh, last student. Uh, well, second to last student and. Uh, He'll be uh, coming on board to trifecta. Justin, thank you for this recommendation to go up there. Uh, they said it was the uh, smallest he, he, he proclaimed and was uh, the, the head brewer was excited about the fact that he's the smallest brewery anyone's ever been to. And I've been to 43 breweries, um, probably a little bit more, uh, 43 since I came with my wife. Um, and he was like, nope, we're the smallest every time I mention another brewery. So it was kind of a small microbrewery. Really, really tasty brew, super refreshing. It's kind of early in the morning. I didn't want anything heavy. Uh, got kind of a tang to it, uh, almost like a sour. So, uh, yeah, anybody in the, I think in the, it's in the Westville area, kind of Cinnamonson area, Eclipse Brewing, super nice people. Uh, definitely check it out. But uh, what about you, uh, Brandon? Awesome. Like you said, it's early in the morning. I was actually treating a couple of patients this morning uh, on the Saturday. So I just uh, threw some Buchanan's into my uh, coffee, making an Irish coffee right now. But uh, I did recently have a birthday and I have some new whiskeys that were bought for me. So stay tuned within the next couple of shows. We'll, um, uh, I'll break those bad boys out for you. So Nice. You always get the excellent whiskey. Yeah, I need to uh, calm down because I'm just stocking up all these bottles and I, I probably don't drink them fast enough. Yeah, <laughs> I have some. I'm like, oh, yeah, I should pull them out during the during the show here and there. But uh, uh, one day, maybe one day we'll uh, just have us drink all day and see, see what our clinical discussions come like. But <laughs> Yeah, that, that'll be a show for you. 
<laughs> but uh, let's go back to um, PFPS there. Uh, I kind of think uh, how we normally kind of get things going is kind of talk about maybe our previous experiences with it. Um, maybe uh, kind of how we started either as students or entry level uh, clinicians uh, and then kind of show our evolution through the whole process. Uh, me personally, um, yeah, something that probably overdiagnosed as well uh, earlier on and kind of just treated everyone exactly the same. If it was patellofemoral pain syndrome, especially early on in my career, I didn't have much as much of a direct access uh, clientele. Um, if it was someone with anterior knee pain, as long as it wasn't anything on the patellar tendon, it was pretty much I was mobilizing their patella in probably all four directions. Um, no real specific, you know, rhyme reason, just let's mobilize it. Uh, probably made myself believe it was hypermobile to a degree compared to the non-involved. If it was both, I was probably just mobilizing both. Then um, maybe some like quad strengthening, definitely some hip work and um that was you know maybe some i don't even know if i did that many squats to be honest um this is you know going back a couple of years but uh really didn't really wasn't really specific with my hip strengthening or anything like that didn't really care to i just kind of prescribed you know a series of things oh bridges you know clamshells uh straight leg raises four ways and uh didn't really care to see how they even did that um, maybe throw in some core exercises and, uh, that was probably, you know, maybe throw in some cardio, uh, but, uh, that was probably how things were, you know, if you have patellofemoral pain syndrome, some people get better and probably looking at those individuals, they probably need some, you know, just need some general exercise, maybe an, you know, an off period from whatever was their aggravating factor, but they were probably, going to get better or just need someone to help them out a little bit um mm -hmm. but there is other ones that you know what seemed like you know i think i remember some ci's or something like that where like oh this is you know a simple case you know it's not not you know not surgical or acls or anything like that it's patellofemoral pain syndrome it's simple but i can remember there were some challenging cases and uh my i guess my simplicity or my cookie cutter methods um, when I was younger was probably the result of things becoming more complex than they needed to. But what about you, Brandon? Yeah. Like you said, I, I think we get that, that term PFPS and then we're, we just kind of go through some things that we need or that we thought would work. Like, I like many of the things that you mentioned. And then for some people they get better and some people that they linger and it's kind of taken that, um, a little closer look and seeing what you can do. And I, for me, I, I found that um, the adolescent females tended to be a little bit more trickier uh, mm. and that, and we'll dive into that, especially with some central sensitization. Uh, but early on in my PT career, I actually got turned on to the uh, whole uh, tracks and the train theory and strengthen proximally with the, the hips Um and doing some tell mobilizations and Chris powers had a study uh, several years back on that where they did a functional MRI from somebody, um, you know, looking down from their head and 
basically what they found is when the person was squatting, the kneecap wasn't moving. It was the femur that was moving. So mm-hmm. your femur, the, the tracks and your patella was, was the train. Um, so early on, I kind of got onto that. And I'd say most of my exercises and rehab was probably on that proximal strengthening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you know, in some respects, I had some, some good uh, results with that. But then you had more of those stubborn ones or those chronic ones where you kind of don't know how to manage. And that's where I'd say my biggest evolution came from and really, excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry. I almost, I almost had a sneeze there. Um, <laughs> so yeah, a lot of my uh, progression uh, began in really taking that uh, diagnosis under a microscope and trying to find out um, what it is. And if it's a true strengthening of the quads or is it a timing thing, or maybe it's a central sensitization uh, or, you know, a, a real irritation, that fat pad, going on and and then trying to find uh i guess really diagnose uh diving into that impairment based treatment that we're always talking about mm-hmm. and finding that one or two things that gives that patient re- relief until we can make some headway mm. yeah um absolutely and uh that's a big thing is finding one one of those one or two things and uh i think my biggest uh, kind of evolution from that kind of more simplistic, you know, that's what every PFPS patient needs to go do is really through the examination process. Um, now I'll take, you know, we mentioned it time and time again, that test retest method. Um, but I'll take things, whether it's generally with athletes with me, of let's say they're you know pain with squatting or jumping or anything like that is trying to make some modifications as they're doing the actual exercise that's bothering them maybe it's a step down or step up and those sort of things so i'll play around and actually mobilize their patella as they're doing things um so i had a cool case about two days ago of a girl at for since she was in eighth grade and now she's approaching senior year. So we did like, you know, luckily as a student, we were able to do like a medial glide, lateral glide, inferior and superior glide as she was doing squats. And then just each time she just reported what was better for or worse for or not. So taking that and then tying that into my treatment, I was like, okay, the medial glide was the most beneficial of all the four we should probably do some things with those. Um, and then really just being real thorough with uh, my my testing of their muscles and those sort of things. Not just kind of assuming all the hip musculature or, or weak, I'll go and test internal rotators, external rotators, hip abductors, make sure they're not, you know, compensating with their TFL or quad, um, really set them up and really, really be specific. And I'll test them in like long lever, short lever, really to make sure I see any differences between the two. But that's pretty much how, like, I was able to really identify those one or two things that, you know, are painful and we can make an immediate impact on right there. It's like, okay, that hurts the squat. I played around with your kneecap as he did, and all of a sudden it wasn't painful to squat. And that just fuels that buy-in that we always talk about. Yeah. Uh, with that, I mean, we're, we're talking about, and I know you talk about the, the proximal hip, but uh, I just want to backpedal. When we're talking about PFPS, you know, 
di- it's largely a diagnosis of, of exclusion. Hmm. Um, and as I said before, the females tend to be more likely to have it, especially the adolescent ones. I believe females are about two times more likely to have uh, PFPS. And you'd want to, you know, make sure you're uh, ruling out any other type of knee injury or knee pathology, especially mm-hmm. ones that closely mimic that, like a tendonitis or a Osgood Schlatter's or, uh, Jeremy, what's the, the name of the one that's similar to Osgood Schlatter's, Sinden Lohan? Sinden Lohan. I thought it Larson, but I yeah, think so, it's... Yeah. Where um, that's actually uh, inflammation of the distal patella versus mm-hmm. tibial tuberosity. I'm blanking on the name right now. Forgive me. But, um, you know, definitely excluding those. And then, you know, having aggravating symptoms with squatting, like you said, or, or uh, stairs. I know you said you, you, yeah. you'll have them look at, uh, you'll analyze their gait mechanics when they're doing stairs, running and kneeling. I mean, those are going to be your typical aggravating factors. Um, Cook actually in 2010 uh, had um, a study here where he has a, if any two of these following three uh, equal a positive likelihood ratio of 4.0, which is moderate, it's not the strongest, but again, it gives us something in the right direction to, to go off of pain with resisted isometrics, quad, uh, quadriceps contraction, pain during squat, and then pain with palpation to the posterior lateral and posterior medial uh, borders of, uh, of that patella. So uh, it's something for you guys to, to really hone in on it and help guide your treatment. Mm-hmm. And um, I will say not only looking at the hips, but looking at the ankles and feet. Absolutely. Uh, are they pronating excessively? Uh, mm-hmm. Is there a lack of control there that needs to be worked on as well that's causing maybe that tibia to uh, externally rotate and that femur to internally rotate or vice versa, causing some of that increased stress on there? Uh, mm-hmm. And not just going into, oh, I'm going to do some quad strengthening or something I've still seen. I don't know how it's still out there, guys. Uh, yeah, the no. bridges with the, the ball between the knees and squeezing. Um, but, yeah, we, we need to move beyond that mm-hmm. and start uh, treating this more specifically. And like you said, that test for test is, is huge. Yeah, I, I think I got a script for uh, VMO strengthening on my last uh uh, patellofemoral pain syndrome client. I'm like, really? Are we really still doing that with all the research saying that we can't really isolate that? But uh, yep, it was sending sending Larson uh, Johansson um, disease, so SLJ for short. Um, yeah, there. Yeah, we got we got two of the three. I mean, I think they probably should start renaming some of these conditions. But uh, yeah. I always get guys to figure it out. And I want to say. I want to say a Scarlett Johansson from the Avengers, but I know that's uh, not it. See, that would that would stick with most people's minds, though. You know, it's like, oh, okay, you know, Scarlett Johansson versus sitting Larson Johansson, but um, yeah, I'm guessing Sin Larson was not nearly as a uh, good looking as uh, the Avengers girl. No. Uh, was that not. Black Widow? Black Widow. Yeah, Black Widow. Yeah, but um, yeah, maybe we should like kind of go into some quick um for those individuals out there we kind of talked about a couple things in um larson johansson we talked about osgood schlatter's um patella tendinopathy some quick um ways obviously it's gonna be a little bit more in depth you know you gotta use your clinical intuition patient reports and those sort of things some quick tests and measures to kind of rule out like which one is which 
um, I think may be good. They're they're pretty quick. Um, you know, with Oshkosh Schlatters, we should know that you know there should be some sort of discomfort at the uh, tibial tuberosity, especially with palpation. Um, sometimes also with quad activation. I'll start playing with these, you know, patellar tendinopathies and Oshkosh um, Schlatters. I'll play around with their um, you know, quad extension resistance at multiple degrees to see yep. if it elicits anything. Uh, patellar tendinopathy, obviously more at the, um, more at the patellar tendon, obviously a lot of your jumping sports. Uh, I think Oshkosh Schlatters is more males than females, right, Brandon? Yeah, more, uh, more males, uh, in the age range of eight to 12 or eight to 15. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so if you're not a male, and you're not in that age bracket. You probably don't have it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not probably, but you, yeah. you know, you you get to hedge your bets a little bit better mm-hmm. uh, and become that detective where you're you're making that hypothesis list and then thro- you know throwing things off the table or on the table. Mm-hmm. But you combine that with point tenderness to actual the tibial tuberosity. Make sure it's not that patella tendon more superior, but it has to be on that bone, and uh, you probably rule it out. And then, like you said, the jumping sports too. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I've had a female or two, and it's pretty apparent, like, that they have even, I mean, I was was surprised with that. It's like, they get those almost golf balls for tibial tuberosities, and it's pretty much basketball, volleyball. I don't think I've ever seen it. Whereas, for Oshkoshlaters with males, I've seen it in soccer, basketball, volleyball, and a variety of sports. Yeah. Yeah. Versus for a female, and it's been rare. It's more just jumping and um, landing, but definitely that you know, you know, excessive tibial tuberosity might might be a telltale sign. Um, and then uh, comparison, you know, with the SL SLJ, you're thinking more towards the um, you know right around that shin bone patella tendon as well. Um, yeah, SLJ is more that distal, distal uh, patella actually. Yeah, right, where it comes mm-hmm. So, um, and I think that's um, that's actually more girls. I want to say like between nine and twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the difference. SLJ is more common in women, and Osgood's more common in boys. Mm-hmm. And then I guess what the last one severs disease. But that's something we'll talk about with the foot ankle. Yeah, uh, those are those. Kind of classic uh, signs of our, or, or pathologies of our of our younger athletic uh, youths. There, um, something I've also noticed with that. Just uh, this is, I guess, anecdotally, um, mm. and maybe more because of the the population I see. It tends to be more the those youth athletes, and if you look at those age ranges, those are when the boys and girls are growing. Mm-hmm. So something I always ask is yep. if their parents have noticed that they've grown you know, anywhere from two, three to five inches in the past year. Uh, Cause that's when thing, you know, their bones are growing and maybe their muscles and tendons haven't caught up to them or the coordination and, and motor patterning hasn't caught up. Usually obviously the strength and timing hasn't. So I, I just find that as useful information to help me um, determine what I need to do, uh, especially on the therac side. Um, I'll use my manual to calm maybe some symptoms down uh, and then kind of jump into some of the exercises based on their impairments. Yeah. And I always, another anecdotally sort of thing is they usually have more than one. So they'll have like SLJ 
and Severs or Severs and Osgoods or yeah. something of that kind of nature is they, they'll typically with those rapid growth spurts and like, and even the kids usually say like, yeah, I kind of grown a lot over the last year or last couple months or they'll get a couple of months, a couple of inches in a month. I'm like, all right. Um, so those typically go hand in hand. They're just growing quite rapidly, but let's get back into our patellofemoral pain syndrome. Um, now that we kind of talked about some of the more popular other conditions that may people have some confusion with and each one of those conditions will have some sort of uh, different treatment approach and those sort of things but still using those impairment based approaches um, to kind of treat where their deficiencies are I treat a lot of teachers and um, they, they one teacher mentioned to me that like, kids are just kind of behind motor development wise in the last couple of years like especially teachers that have uh, been teaching for 10 20 30 years they're like they can't do simple things like skipping and those sort of things. So, yeah, but yet nobody goes out and plays anymore. Yeah, yeah, but they'll go out and they'll just you know play two rounds of like or play on like three different soccer teams and those sort of mm-hmm. things. But they'll miss the basics on these sort of things. So I see it kind of clinically. I mean, I've been I mean, working in physical therapy for twelve plus years, but as a clinician, what five to six. But you can kind of see these sort of things. So. I'm sure things like that can be carried over into all these conditions, but like maybe your manual techniques will be a bit different for patellofemoral pain syndrome than it would be for patellotendinopathy and Oshkosh-Flotters and those sort of things. But going into it, um, anything else there, Brandon, any other kind of things that you look for or techniques you're now, like how things you approach now when it comes to uh, this umbrella patellofemoral pain syndrome? Uh I definitely play around with the tibia a little more, mm-hmm. uh, especially in those combined planes of either – well, this is singular. It's just rotation. Mm-hmm. I play around to see if there's internal external rotation. I find that that gives patients relief or it might be a little stiffer. Uh, and then I also play with that – I know you like this one, the, uh, where you have the knee straight and you kind of apply a deduction uh, mm-hmm. slash extension force to the tibia, mm-hmm. uh, get a little bit more motion there. I find that that helps um, a lot with the, these types of patients. Um, again, the goal is to really just get things to calm down and maybe for that, that student, or not the student, but the, um, the patient to uh, just kind of have a little bit more proprioceptive awareness. I kind of have more of a neurophysiological approach or theory when I'm, I'm doing more of these techniques for them. Um, than actually more of a, a biomechanical one as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then looking, I look more regionally as well. Like I said, really looking at the ankle and foot. Yep. Uh, if I look, if I'm treating anything in the ankle or foot, I, I just do the whole foot and ankle. Um, I want to make sure that there's great toe extension, especially the great toe, mm-hmm. that that forefoot is able to kind of pronate and supinate well, that there's some mobility within that rear foot. Uh, and then to see how, you know, how that, the midfoot joints are, are doing, now, obviously that midfoot needs to be a little bit more stiff because that's kind of what's creating that, that tent for you. But mm-hmm. you want, you do want some mobility within that midfoot a bit, but most of that mobility should come from that rear foot, forefoot. So I, I really try to address that whole complex, especially after evaluating them functionally, like you said, like a step down or a squat. If I see that they're pronating or have mm-hmm. lack of control, I'm going to. 
I'm going to look at that region to see if anything is there. Or um, past injuries. Does that athlete have or a patient have a history of sprained ankles or mm-hmm. a history Absolutely. of something, some other type of um, injury, whether it's proximally or distantly, that may be causing to some compensatory uh, strategies leading to some pain? Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more. I definitely, probably in the last year, looked definitely more at the ankle for that, like, you know, arch collapse, especially like your squatting, jumping, deadlifting, all these sort of things. But uh, yeah, I had a client, um, she's now just like once a, once every other week or once a month, just here for checkups. Actually, just saw her for her neck, not even for her knee. But she's been, she's been battling this, you know, patellofemoral pain syndrome for over five years. Tried, she just wants to be active. She tried powerlifting, kickboxing, CrossFit, um, Peloton biking, all these sort of things, and and seen. I can't remember how many therapists or uh, sports medicine specialists, and no one checked her ankle, like no one. And she, I'll I'll look at non-weight bearing, weight bearing dorsiflexion, you know, knee to wall kind of test. And she had like no mobility whatsoever and just started doing that. And she worked on the mechanics to kind of, once we started getting more motion to show her, this is what we got to do with the, your new available range. And she's absolutely pain-free. Um, so definitely something to look at. Some things as you kind of awesome. talk, yep. Yeah, um, talk. Yeah, you, know, you talk about regionally and those sort of things, um, rare cases and those sort of things, just for those, maybe those chronic um, central sensitization types. Um, I believe there was a, uh, not clear, uh, I guess a clinical prediction rule. Uh, sometimes every once in a while, you get those people who just need some desensitizations there. So I'll do some of your local peripheral ones. I like the distraction manip- uh, mobilization at the knee where you're trying to do a, essentially a PA into flexion just to kind of gap things. But also like working into like, you know, lumbar and hip mobilizations, uh, especially lumbar. I've, I've had some experience, um, not ever, not as much profoundly as it is in the hip, but definitely yeah. you may have an effect where you just do a lumbar manipulation and you actually can desensitize that area a little bit the knees and allow them to do more in the session or again show them that you can affect it more than pills or season activity um yeah there was actually a a study on that um i don't know if this was actually ever validated though no it wasn't i'm pretty sure you're talking about the iverson study i believe Um, so uh, what year was it 2006 or 8 i think it was 2008 uh and they looked at, what, five factors. Mm-hmm. I believe internal rotation being limited, uh, pain with squatting. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm just trying to think what they were. Um, I believe stepping up was uh, an activity they looked at. And then um, navicular drop. Yep. Um, uh, navicular drop. Ankle yeah, dorsiflexion. I yeah, I got it. Um, got it. it was yeah. invalid. It was Crowell at all in 2012. Um, difference in hip internal rotation greater than 14 degrees. Ankle dorsiflexion with knee flex greater than 16 degrees. Navicular drop greater than three millimeters. Yeah, no stiffness yeah. with sitting for 20 minutes and squatting is the most painful activity. If yeah. you had 
um, you know, four of those uh, five year likelihood ratios was, and according to the study was, was one. So Iverson did it in 2008 um, okay. and Crowell did it in 2012. Okay. And um, it was, if you had four more, your, your specificity was a 0.84 and um, likely a positive likelihood ratio was a one. So I mean, yep. again, it could be better. Um, but again, I, I, I've tried and I'll, I was kind of approaching like, yeah, we will, you know, maybe just test this out. You know, it's not going to, you know, hurt or damage anything, but doesn't hurt to try it. And then, you know, again, just kind of reassess things, but probably not exactly. something as often as I do. Um, if I'm looking at stuff in the, in the more the hips, the back and those sort of things, but definitely an option, something to consider. Um, what about what's your thoughts on how you do with um taping there, Brandon? Are you do you tape a lot? Um, yeah, so it? actually, before we get to tape, I had a question for you. What, oh. What's your thought? And, and it, it, it covers or it kind of hinges on the taping, that's why I want to ask it first. Oh, um, thoughts on patella baja or alta or medial tilting or lateral tilting and gliding and uh, all those different terms that are out there. Um, and I see it still when I've worked with, you know, other clinicians, um, you know, either regionally or for mentoring or whatever, that's something that they seem to still be putting a lot of stock into. What, what are your takes on that? Um, probably less than what I used to, um, just because it's so, it's so subjective of like, you know, who, how, who determines that and those sort of things. Uh, I've looked more to try and modulate things, uh, play around with it, you know, but um, all the maltracking and those sort of things like, oh, your knees are maltracking, they're, you know, squinting patellas or again, patella bar or alto, um, you know, I don't classify them as that, but I'll maybe do some interventions that would, you know, would, would address those things. But I don't say, oh, your kneecaps are, one your one kneecap is higher than the other. I don't really put as much. Maybe I'm wrong with that, but I think it's a little bit too subjective to kind of determine. You know, if if I took five clinicians, we may have three different, four different responses. But uh, what about you, Brandon? You're a little bit more uh, on the advanced training than I am. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say that. I mean, you're right there with me. But uh, yeah, I I don't put pretty much any stock into that. I'll pay more of attention to just how it's moving the overall glide. Is it gliding up and down? Well, mm -hmm. uh, is it gliding medially? Well, but to say somebody has a tilt, not only is, is, is it subjective, I'm not changing that structure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, are we modulating something, you know, with that neurophysiological effect when we're mobilizing or taping it probably, but am I going to make a, a frog eyed patella be more neutral Probably not. I'm not going to, you know, make a, a laterally tilted patella, you know, more more neutral as well. Probably not. So I think not only trying to spend time treating it is probably is efficient, but using, you know, home for words and telling a patient that they have their knee that's out to the side or um, that it's higher than it should be or, you know, things like that. You know, just think about take a step back and think about what type of image or picture that paints for the patient who doesn't have the education that we have um, as clinicians and they're mm -hmm. just going to hear you know my patella is crooked or my kneecap's crooked uh, and then they're going to think that something's wrong with them and, and that's probably not the case because they probably had 
you know, a frog and a patella for the whole life. I mean, yeah. my patella is personally kind of tilt outwards, lad more, uh, ride more on a lateral side. I, I haven't had any knee pain. So, yeah. uh, I mean, there's real no strong correlation with that, and that's been proven in the research. So, if you're one of those clinicians that are still looking at that, uh, you know, we kind of challenge you to to begin to begin to take a, a different look at that. Mm-hmm. But uh, to answer your question, I do do taping. Um, again, more for the more neurophysiological effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will use the Meccano or Luco tape. And what I have found more effective is uh, I know some people when they tape lateral to medial, they just do like a three inch strip from the lateral side to the medial side. Uh, and I found that was less effective. That was the old practice pattern. And so I was working with somebody who actually had told me they were working with Jenny McConnell and that anchor should wrap all the way around and up to that uh, either mid or lateral part of the hamstring. So you're getting mm-hmm. a nice strong anchor. So, yeah. um, so I have had more success with that. The tape does stay on longer. I found with that three inch piece of tape that you'd put medial lateral or lateral to medial would tend to fall off. Um, yeah. So especially the active clients, it's like one good bend and it'll pop right off. Yep. Um, but yeah, as you said, it's like neurophysiological effects. I always try and be like cognizant of how I kind of approach it. I'm like, yeah, you know, we're just seeing how this will do to make you see if it makes any impact. Um, so I'll have them, you know, tape. I'll do sometimes even a couple rounds of tape. Uh, I'll see. I'll kind of do that assessment of like, all right, let me try and do it with my hands first. All right, that seemed better. Tape, read, have them do it again. And then maybe apply a second strip maybe to either further enhance the first one or slightly adjust it just to kind of show them, all right, we can play around with these things. And it's just supposed to make things feel better. Maybe some proprioceptive awareness of that area um, and those sort of things. Because in all honesty, I, I have people come back and they're like, I was great for three days and they wore it for three days. And all honesty, there is no way that that tape, stayed consistently strong for three days maybe some but a lot of it, your, your tissue is just going to get used to it and relax and the same thing with those patella braces i'm not a huge fan of those um they never really do or never stick where they really need to be and they're like oh it's moving things over again just probably just some awareness to the area um but yeah i'll play around with those sort of things um and it, it seems like it does beneficial and then just kind of always educate yeah, we're just doing this now, make things feel better uh, for the time period. And then slowly you're going to see that you're not going to need it and then just wean them off. But um, that's my approach with taping for the most part. Chronic patients with uh, this long-lasting anterior knee pain of PFPS, I think the acute ones tend to clear up a little quicker. But what yeah. are your approaches in that, that chronic pain or, or central sensitization? Those ones, I mean, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that goes for anything. Anybody who's acute, I mean, we can probably fix them a lot quicker than the, the chronic individuals, but especially with those. Those were ones, I mean, at the point where it's chronic, they, again, they're the individuals that have probably seen a lot of people and kind of the system kind of failed them. So kind of rewriting one, their thought process. Uh, we had a lady... Uh, bilateral crossfitter um so she said everything essentially hurts uh finally her her 
her owner of her gym told us to come see us as a second opinion and see another sports med person there it's maltracking and she's like it's the doctor said that's just the way that she's been designed all her life i was like well have you been in athletics all your life and she's like yeah uh like cheerleading and stuff i was like did you have problems with cheerleading she was like no and those sort of things so you start to like kind of pepper in some things to them uh definitely with the education purpose uh but especially with those chronic individuals um that's when you start to see some i would say definitely some motor you know motor planning deficiencies uh forms pretty 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 poor um which is surprising. Like a lot of those people have gone through the rehab system and they're still, they're still doing things incorrectly. So a lot of showing them what they're doing wrong. Finally, like we had a gal who like the eighth, the since eighth grade and now a senior, and she's seen like two or three therapists, a couple specialists, uh, uh, sportsmen specialists, and she's a volleyball player and not one person of all of them ever took a look at how she was jumping. So I was just like, all right, let's just take a video. And it was clear as day, right knee collapsed, left knee was pretty bad too. And just showing her and like, all right, listen, you're at the national club level of volleyball. You need to, you need to clean this up. So just showing education and just hammer home what you need to. What about you, Brandon? Yeah, I agree with you hundred percent on educating them on their pain and focusing more on on that function uh and i try to give them activities especially in the beginning that don't really go beyond a three out of ten on the pain scale initially until we can build their tolerance up and that's how i look at it as a tolerance thing Mm -hmm. and and you kind of touched upon it like when we're doing exercise with them their first couple reps probably don't bother but when you get you know higher reps or longer into a set or game that's when things begin to to add up so slowly adding repetitions as it can can, can tolerate mm-hmm. and, and going from there so uh i find a lot of these chronic pain like like you said though in this subgroup at least they are the athletic ones they are the ones that are used to playing through it so once they reach a certain certain threshold uh either physically or stressfully uh because you know sporting events are stressful uh things begin to kind of flare up a little bit more. So how can we uh, begin to, to bring that, that pain level down? And I, I also add in a, a bit of a aerobic capacity as well, mm-hmm. uh, building that up for them, uh, hopefully find an activity that doesn't bother them. Uh, I think there are just great effects with aerobic activity, uh, both from obviously the brain level and you know the pain centers in the brain. Uh, as well as just one's ability to recover uh, mm-hmm. and kind of get back down to a, I guess, a level of homeostasis when they're in a, a sporting event. So I, I kind of have that bit of approach too. Uh, mm-hmm. And obviously something like that takes a little bit longer, but that's something that they can work on on their own. Yeah. Uh, and that most athletes should be doing anyway, but probably don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find a lot of the, the youth athletes tend to be deconditioned uh for what the amount of volume that they do but they're young so they can just keep playing and it, it doesn't affect them you or i yeah we, we play about half an hour and we're already winded but <laughs> the, the kids the True younger story. age the younger age they could just they just are able to keep going mm-hmm. um, so 
that's just a difference in physiology. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely with the the cardio too, and that's something generally, you know, unless it's like you know runners with runners, obviously runners knees gets part of this umbrella term, but you can pick something they'll still be active, they'll still get a good sweat out of it. Let's say you're biking or swimming or doing something like that or the ski erg or something like that. And they're getting that saying, I'm still working out, um, still being active. And this is actually helping me versus, you know, flaring me up. Um, well, speaking of flare ups and those sort of things, cause I mean, a lot of the times I'll have clients, they'll say, you know, it blew up over the weekend or it swelled or it's swollen right now. And I'll be like, you know, it's not so much, especially with your patellofemoral pain, if it really is that case, is it really a true inflammatory response uh, versus our tendonitis and tendinopathies? And I'll go and I'll measure it just to be, you know, thorough with the clients of very few um, or actually show any differences whatsoever, but they perceive it. Do you ever get that, Brandon? Yeah, the, the, I find those patients tend to kind of, well, I guess it looks like they just have a constant area that's that like by that distal uh kneecap to be just chronically inflamed i guess but uh that that tends to be there whether they're in, you know in the acute bat or not mm-hmm. so i think that goes back to that central sensitization yeah uh as well and, and maybe there is some some nociceptive inflammation as well yeah but you know then a couple of days goes by they're fine but that little pocket's kind of still there so um, you know, what does that mean? I, I don't know if I have a, a, a 100% answer for you. Other than that, um, you know, I try to calm it down and I probably, whether rightfully so or not, kind of, I don't want to say write it off as kind of that chronic uh, inflammation or sensory sensitization, but that's uh, my, my explanation at least. And then don't get me wrong, I'll still try and do what I need to do to calm it down and get that patient feeling better. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, well, I don't put as much stock in it, I guess, I guess I'm trying to say. Well, yeah, no, same way. And I actually feel it's more in those chronic clients and those sort of things. And I'm like, okay, and we're going to do some things. I'll play around, do some techniques to their knees and stuff like that. But um, it is pretty interesting. I always found that interesting. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, maybe a little bit, even if the measurements are exactly the same. I'm like, okay. Um, but, you know, you're probably within normal limits. Maybe it's just kind of coming down, you know, changes in diet, sleep, those sort of things may influence that and try and get them away from that. But, um, yeah, it's especially my chronic patients. They'll say, Oh, it's something that blew up. I'm like, Oh, send me a picture. And I never get those pictures. Uh, Cause I'll be like, uh, Oh shit. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah. Uh, anything else that you feel is pertinent? Yeah, right? I, I guess yeah. just lastly, and I kind of said this, but I kind of want to clarify it. On those chronic patients, uh, I, f- I guess I'm going to just kind of re- reword what I was saying. Uh, I know I had said increase those reps for those patients, but I feel like this, this is where and it, you, you talked about it in the beginning, that subjective history and your examination really kind of goes into this. Because mm-hmm. if you just chalk it up to, oh, they have PFPS, I'm going to treat them this way, but they're in a chronic state versus an acute state. And chronic, you know, six months, a year, two years, they've had it. Um, telling them to rest is probably not the the best thing for those type of patients. 
you want to gradually have them increase their activity level and function to get used to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, having a patient continuing to rest, now you're underloading the patient. And now, you know, thinking along the lines of, uh, of tissue properties and, and physiology and overloading the body, uh, I think PT sometimes air too much on that side of caution of, oh, rest, let's ice it. Let's just, you know, do some low-level exercises. When on that chronic patient, you probably need to push the envelope a little bit, again, within limits. And that's why I said use that 3 to 10 pain scale uh, as a threshold. Mm-hmm. But these patients probably always are having some type of pain, so you can't really go by their pain scale. Uh, and if you do, you kind of have to reset that pain scale, not think of it as a zero, but think of their zero as their their constant pain that they're always kind of in. Yeah, absolutely. And most of these individuals are, again, active individuals. And if you restrict them so much um, or you keep them just doing table exercises, obviously, if it's very extreme levels of pain, those sort of things, you have to adjust things. But if you do that, you'll, you'll never you never see the, the end of the plan of care because they'll, they'll just bail out. And a lot of the time I hear it's just like, I have pain, but it's not worth me giving up exercise or activities sort of thing. So it's our job to make that better for them and figure out what's going on with it. So definitely I agree with you that we have to keep them active and increase their capacity to handle the loads and stresses that they go through. But um, Yeah, if there's no uh, other pearls of wisdom there, uh, Brandon. Yeah. Uh, I think that was pretty good. Uh, may lead to other discussions. Maybe we'll go into a little bit more of the specifics of those other conditions. Um, but um, I thought this was a great episode. I uh, hope everyone learned something. Um, but yeah, if you feel, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, um, anything about it or need some potential some mentorship or anything like that, feel free to contact us at Manips and Sips um, and or Brandon's at Think like a fellow and at Pursue PT Now. And I'm at the Decent Doctor and at Trifecta Therapeutics. So feel free to reach out to us. We're always willing to help everyone. And um, I pass it off to Brandon. Anything for you to say? No, nope. uh, I think you cut it all, Jay. All right. Well, cheers, everyone. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.